Telehealth, it's here to say. Now what? Well, it turns out there's still a lot more to do, particularly when it comes to the opportunities that present for how telehealth can be utilised to better service our rural and remote populations of Australia. This episode's a bit of a compilation episode where you'll hear from guests who've been on the podcast before. So you might hear some snippets that you've heard in the past, but with some commentary over the top from me to give it more context. But also some other reflections from workshops and summits that we've run in the past that you might not have heard. So there's some familiar names that you'll hear in here and an opportunity afterwards to jump onto our website to get stuck into even more detail. But right now, you'll hear our reflections on where we're at when it comes to telehealth in rural and remote Australia and what needs to happen. Collaboration starts with the conversation, Team Health Tech. Well, let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. So telehealth is a permanent fixture of how healthcare is delivered today driven mainly by the funding that's come off the back of the COVID pandemic to allow for clinicians to bill for many more types of telehealth services under Medicare. It's not like here in Australia that we've only just discovered telehealth and the importance that it plays in our healthcare system, particularly when you're looking at the rural and remote parts of this country. We're a big brown land with a lot of geographical space and a lot of healthcare that needs to be delivered in places that are hard to get to but are well populated because we know that people that live in rural and remote areas they have shorter life expectancy they've got higher chances of injuries and disease and poorer access to health services compared to people living in metropolitan parts of australia and in this episode we're exploring telehealth and rural and remote australia as we've heard on the podcast before from jen beer who heads up health and education for the NBN, telehealth in the bush has been around for over 20 years. So it's almost like the capital cities are are catching up through COVID. But I think the importance and also the advancement of technology and the advancement of virtual care is what we're seeing now. So it's not just about making sure that people in the bush can just have a telehealth consultation. It's about bringing them with us on this journey of innovation and healthcare and technology. It's about making sure that they can be part of these incredible clinical trials that are happening and the remote monitoring and a lot of the innovations that, you know, you talk about on the podcast as well. We want to make sure that that's enjoyed by people, not just those living in metro cities. And as we heard at our spring summit in 2021 from Brian Sullivan from MedRefer, the need to do a consultation remotely has always existed. And sometimes you'll just use whatever resources you've got available to you. Like a two-way radio. Yeah, I sort of, uh, I go back quite a long way, probably further than most realise, but I started my working career as a young stock inspector based in Thargaminda. And uh, I sort of learned a fair bit about sort of the remoteness of uh, health services, particularly when I experienced some incidences with broken legs and injuries in, in the far west of Queensland. This was Thargaminda was my most easterly spot. And I looked after that corner of Queensland. And then I sort of had uh, a relationship with the Dr. Tim O'Leary, who was based in Charleville at the time. And, and uh, some of the services that the flying doctor was able to deliver in those far western countries was absolutely unreal. One of the things that sort of surprised me when people become very sort of conscious of privacy 
was in those days, if privacy wasn't an issue, it was just getting help. And uh, the weekly sessions or the regular sessions over the two-way radio of consults was a sort of the, uh, if you like, people would ask the questions and complain that and expose their, their conditions to Dr. O'Leary on the open air and whilst those who were not wanting to talk about it could also pick up conditions for themselves. So it, it helped in a way that so people could relate to the other person's conditions. So we can imagine the benefits of telehealth from a patient's perspective, obviously, but as we're doing more and more telehealth now, what's it like from a GP's perspective? As Dr. Ian Kammerman from Northwest Health has outlined, one of the biggest challenge for GPs while performing telehealth consultations is all of the logistics. Well, I think one of the uh, biggest things that GPs do these days is it's all about logistics, ensuring that you've got adequate resources. You know, you could be working alone in a rural hospital, you get a call from the ambulance, so you gather your resources around you. And you can picture why as well, can't you? Because patients in rural and remote Australia need to travel significant distances. So, you know, if patients do need to travel significant distances, it's important to ensure that you need to have all your resources organised, all the tests done beforehand, the travel is organised there, and also the patient can actually find their way to the hospital from the train station or from the airport, and then also that they can find their way back when they come back, and also that the resources are there to, uh, you know, they need home help or whatever. But it is a matter of, of actually trying to draw all this together. And telehealth is indeed a great solution for many different circumstances in healthcare, but it's important to think about when telehealth is appropriate and when it's not. As Dr Annie Banbury has explained, it's worth thinking about where telehealth fits on the care pathway for a patient. If you think about a care pathway, then there are particular places along that care pathway that telehealth is very appropriate for a course follow-up for instance. So think about follow-up appointments. Very often you may just be looking at images. It may just actually be a conversation that you're having with your clinician. And so that lends itself really to telehealth. There's pre-treatment and processes and consultations that lend itself to telehealth. You know, if you need a hands-on, that's far more difficult for sure. And, and it's about understanding that telehealth isn't appropriate for every type of consultation. But there are many consultations that can be done by telehealth. And a telehealth consult can come in different forms too, which brings up that age-old debate of video versus telephone for telehealth. So which is better for a telehealth consult? It's becoming increasingly clear that having a choice is the best way forward. And there's a lot of evaluations going on at the moment looking at, well, maybe there's some appointments that are completely fine to be done just on a phone and using audio. If it's given a test result and there's no further discussion, is that appropriate? You know, is that a model of care that we should be saying, yes, that can be used? When is the video more appropriate? You know, when you need to eyeball a patient, you know, you get so much more from the video. I think there's all sorts of conversations around that at the moment. And it's one thing to have all of the funding available and the technology there to be able to deliver telehealth. But then another critical step in the picture is ensuring patients and providers are well-educated on how telehealth works and the benefits. As Sylvia Pfeiffer from CoView puts it, 
Education is one of the big things that we're facing right now. It's educating the clinicians that are working in hospitals or in, in their private practice about the advantages of telehealth. It's educating patients. Not every patient has found out that telehealth is available and the, the advantages that it offers. Education is actually one of the big things that we have to do right now. And every one of us is helping in one way, shape or form. We are working through relationships with industry associations to help the clinicians pick it up. There are many different ways that different conferences like this where we're educating people. It's a very important role right now because we're still at the beginning of the curve. It's not like every clinician has picked it up yet. For the GPs, we know that 97% of all telehealth consultations were phone consultations. Only about 3% were video consultations. So that obviously means GPs find it relatively easy to pick up the phone and hold the consultation over the phone but the transition to video is still a difficult one so we need to continue to educate people on the advantages of it and to encourage patients also to talk with their clinicians about it because if the patients don't ask for it the clinicians won't offer it but you think about it as more and more services that we receive outside of healthcare are digitized and on demand patients or call them health consumers will start to expect to be able to receive healthcare via telehealth. As Kirsty Garrett from Doctors on Demand has explained. I think it's out there in the streets as far as the consumers and the patients are concerned and the work that the Department of Health and Minister Hunt did last year really legitimised the access of primary care services in particular and psychology to the masses. And you'll find with providers like ourselves who look after consumers as well as employees of large corporates and insurance policy holders, the demand is there and three times up over the last 12 months and that growth is certainly continuing on a month-to-month basis. There's 16 million adult Australians out there with a smartphone. All of those people can access doctors. We don't have enough doctors in, in regional and rural communities and that's widely documented and evidenced yet we can actually provide those patients access and the awareness is there now. But that Sylvia's spot on. We've got to create that demand back on the practitioners to enable themselves and educate themselves and invest in the technology platforms that are a part of their workflow and not an adjunct part of their workflow, which I think is why we've had some of the adoption challenges with, with the clinicians thus far. And thinking about infrastructure for a second, there's no real way around it if you don't have a decent internet connection or phone reception or the right hardware, so computer or phones, it's kind of hard to receive a telehealth consultation. And what we're seeing is more and more good examples of like a blended model of care where telehealth is being delivered from GP clinics in rural and remote areas to connect with specialists in metro parts of Australia. When it comes to actually, there are ways around if you haven't got the hardware or you don't have the internet. There's many good examples of models of care where people are going into uh, multi-purpose centres or into the GPs and having their telehealth consultations. There's a really good reason to do that. I mean, if you have a specialist appointment and your GP is there, both of you hearing that consultation is fantastic because your GP is really hearing exactly what the specialist is telling you. There's a discussion that can happen after that specialist appointment and there's an upskilling of those GPs in that specialist area. Um, Then that's not to say everybody out in the bush doesn't have the equipment or the hardware uh, for sure, but there are ways around it. And I think using that technology that is in those healthcare centres is one way around it. 
And if we can invest in this education about telehealth and giving health consumers the confidence and willingness to utilize these models of care, it gives us a platform to enable more people to proactively look after their own healthcare. Yeah, the advancement of tech is really exciting, but as you've spoken a lot about previously, its success really comes from investing in the confidence and also the willingness of the people that are going to use it. And so for health consumers, it's really about, you know, beyond the connectivity, it's about having access to devices and also that confidence to be able to use the platforms and also the devices themselves to be able to participate. And this not only sets up for what we're facing at the moment, but also thinking about that sort of people being able to participate more in their own healthcare moving forward. And that's a huge focus of the health industry. And so being able to leverage the incredible advancement that's happened over the past 18 months for health consumers and really build that into the future of healthcare will be important. And for healthcare providers, it's been a massive journey as well in thinking about, you know, we often talk about the confidence of the patients or consumers, but it's also about the confidence of the healthcare providers. So not only in them being able to practice in different ways that they probably haven't done before, but also making sure that their clinics and practices are set up for success. And I've seen a lot of clinics that are going on their own digital journey. So we've got some who are still paper-based and moving to cloud. And then you've got others that are incredibly advanced that have been sort of on that journey for, for some time. And so what I've seen is a real emergence in the importance of that sort of ICT support, particularly for a lot of these clinics, to make sure that they are set up for success because it's the industry is only going to digitise further. And so if we're going to be engaging and connecting with patients in rural and remote Australia, it's important that we're cognizant of the most appropriate ways to engage with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. What's important is it's not just about turning on a switch and connecting a community. You've got to think about the risks as well of being online. So it needs to be very much an informed process that the community and you've got decision makers in community who make that decision on behalf of their community members. So the engagement is so important and going on the journey is so incredibly important. And so um, from a health perspective, it is going to take some time, but I think as a health tech community, we need to be thinking about not only the connectivity, but also the products and the services and making sure that we're working with these communities themselves to design something that they need and they want to use. The most important part is being invited and building that trust. It's really important that the purpose behind getting into those communities is the right one. And so working with groups, you know, such as the, the affiliates to be able to understand some of the challenges of the community. So rather than being solution led, I think it really needs to be, you know, understanding what that community needs and helping design for that. So it really is about the conversation and getting that input, which is very different for communities that might even be 50 kilometres apart. We know that there's different languages, different mob, just even that close, but it's exactly the same with the needs of that community as well. So it's important that it can be created to meet those needs. So telehealth is here. That's great, but there's a long way to go. So what do we need to fix in telehealth to make it better? Well, it's time for us to 
think beyond just the console and replicating what happens physically in a doctor's consult room and start thinking about the full life cycle of care for a patient. One of the issues that we're facing at the moment is ordering tests for people via telehealth. Very few of the companies that are actually um, pathology and imaging have the ability to actually smoothly send a request form electronically. You've still got to print it out, you've still got to sign it, you've still somewhere I've got to get it into the patient's hands so they can actually get it done. They are moving towards that, but it is quite a slow process. And what about integration and interoperability? And I'm not talking about between telehealth platforms and GP practice management systems. I'm talking about between GPs and primary care and hospitals. The biggest need and the hugest negative for rural practice is the complete lack of integration between general practice and hospital software. And even in the hospital software in New South Wales, which is where I work, the lack of integration between any of the systems that they use from an IT level, it's shambolic. And it's a significant negative workforce driver in New South Wales because it is so time consuming. So that would be my biggest call for change that would provide the most immediate benefit. But obviously really hard to do if you're sitting within you know, governmental bureaucracy. And across the board, we could benefit from more structured support from our tertiary areas of healthcare for our rural areas. I think in the tertiary sector, what we don't do well is really structured support from our tertiary areas to our rural areas. So there are some states where it's mandated that they must support those rural areas, but in other states it's left to kind of service level agreements and individual kind of services that pop up. And what it creates is really inconsistency and I think that's our biggest problem. We have some really amazing examples of practice, really extraordinary use of telehealth. I've seen podiatrists supervising an allied health professional doing a procedure on a high-risk diabetic foot clinic, you've seen stress testing in a rural area where the real-time data is going back to the tertiary centre. So there are really examples of amazing practice, but it's just pockets. So we actually need to take these pockets and ask the questions, why aren't they across all of the areas? Why should it be a postcode lottery when it comes to your health? Now let's talk more about the money for a second. Funding for telehealth. COVID didn't actually create mass adoption of telehealth services. Changes to funding did. The government supports telehealth now, but that's just the first step. Obviously, government is very much behind it. Um, there's been a lot of calculations and, and information being shared with government around what the impact would be. And that's just from an expense point of view this far. I think uh, they've seen that there's a lot of impact from a healthcare point of view about supporting patients um, and that that's been very helpful, particularly on the mental health side of things, but also GPs have picked it up. So the industry associations have been very much lobbying this and I think we'll see a big change. In my mind, uh, the adoption of telehealth items is a first step. Telehealth Medicare items is a first step towards adopting digital healthcare in government and towards making a bigger change. Video telehealth is obviously more modern technology than the phone and will actually get people to, to adopting digital technology. I believe, you know, remote monitoring will be the next step after. 
and in this dynamic and fluid time that we're living in, decisions around funding for telehealth has been a bit on and off, temporary. And without commitments, it's been hard for different parts of the ecosystem to really commit to telehealth going forward. Saw a real positive step from the government when they provided that initial stage of telehealth support on around the 6th of April and then restricted it as at the 20th of July last year where it was just to the GPs who had seen a patient face-to-face in their own clinic in the last 12 months. So that excluded a significant proportion of the population and in particular those marginalised groups or those healthcare areas where discretion and privacy is, is really critical. So, you know, sexual health, drug and alcohol dependence, the LGBTQI communities, all of those groups were very happy during that initial phase. But these people don't tend to go and see people on a regular basis. They haven't been able to go and see someone in the last 12 months. So they're all excluded. And even since recording that conversation with Kirsty, there have been further changes and we now have more temporary coverage for patients to receive telehealth services. But again, it's temporary. It's really difficult to navigate your path to that horizon when you can only see a few metres in front of you. There's more that we could do for funding for telehealth too. We're really missing this concept of funding for asynchronous services provided by clinicians. To me, what's missing in Medicare is the ability for asynchronous communication. There's a whole lot of stuff that could actually be done by chat or by email or by where you're not having a continuous dialogue. And that's just not allowed under Medicare. Whereas I would argue that a whole lot of stuff that I do on a day-to-day basis could be done using chat apps and, and similar. And I'm aware that, you know, certainly services are set up which are not Medicare rebatable, that some providers are actually starting to use that right now. So what this really highlights to me is that when it comes to healthcare innovation, the payer has a lot of power. And we've been talking about Medicare, specifically for funding of telehealth, but there are other payers in the healthcare ecosystem too, like insurance and employers. as Adam Brett, Director of Commercial Partnerships for ResApp, outlines some of the challenges for insurance companies when it comes to healthcare innovation. Health insurers are expected to do what they're doing and absorb the costs that they have to absorb, as well as find innovation on top of that. And we know that the industry as a whole has been working on some pretty tight margins at the best of time. So trying to find innovation, as well as support the network as it is, and be that aggregator of costs can be quite challenging. As the payer, the payer has the power. And what we're finding more so is that the payers don't actually understand the power that they have. Innovation doesn't need to be a bought or a built product. It can be through collaborative partnerships, but from a health insurance perspective, benefit outlays the biggest cost. How do you then introduce innovation on top of that at another cost? And I think that's a really good discussion because we always talk about cost, but what we should be talking about is reduction of cost through the network and improving the patient outcome. The problems and challenges with telehealth aren't technology problems. A lot of it comes down to funding. Payers can shift the needle when it comes to innovation in healthcare. The technology is there and it's ready and can be implemented. 
The consumers and patients want the technology to make their lives and their health better and want to focus on more uh, interactive and integrated healthcare, including telehealth. But the payers, that's the missing piece of the puzzle. The payers need to drive that adoption, need to drive that change, need to incentivize the system to adopt the change. You know, healthcare, in, in, there's a McKinsey report that came out, uh, telehealth has increased 36x before, since comparing the pre-pandemic and the post-COVID situation. So there's been a 36x increase in adoption in telehealth in the US. And there's probably similar adoption here. If you look at the root cause of why it wasn't adopted here in the first place, it wasn't the technology. I mean, there was a lot of funding and support to roll out these video systems to GPs and to the clinicians. But part of it was also legislative and, and, and reimbursement focus. You know, you could not get reimbursed for a telehealth consult unless the patient was more than X kilometers away from you or unless they lived in an indigenous community, right? So it was driven by the payer system that resistance to adoption of telehealth. It wasn't that the consumers didn't want it or the doctors didn't want to adopt it and learn it. Right? So you've got to think about those things and, and that's where the payers can really shift the needle. Right? But interestingly, it's not just about throwing more money at healthcare to fix it. That's not how payers are going to move the needle. It's almost about being innovative about what we have and thinking strategically about how the decisions by payers on what's covered and what's not will drive adoption of emerging and innovative technologies in healthcare. What I find the difference between Australia and a lot of other countries is that there's not as much money going around health systems in other countries, so they're forced to innovate to get the right patient outcomes. We're almost too privileged in Australia that we have too much money in our health system, so therefore anywhere you go, whether it's public or private, you're going to get a level of care that a lot of other countries and people in those communities can't get. So it's not forcing the innovation side of it to come through. And the time to do it is now. Because at some point, there's going to be a consolidation of technologies in healthcare. And the more rolling up and aggregation that happens, arguably, it reduces the opportunities for partnerships between larger organisations and more smaller, nimble startups, who by definition have the permission to create these innovative solutions without red tape and then partner with the big organisations to deliver scale. I think... What I'm seeing and what we've seen in the past with different models is that at some point in time, this consolidation phase of technology occurs. And what we've seen in the past also is that private equity firms get involved very quickly and they are the ones that pay for that consolidation phase and they are the ones that benefit because they roll up and if someone bought complementary technology that sits alongside each other um, and aggregates it all together, and I think that's going to be the real shame, particularly in Australia, if that happens, because I think there's some really good opportunities for collaboration, partnership across a number of complementary technologies to form something that's going to give patient outcomes that next step. We're not talking about just telehealth, I call it the, the ongoing patient health. Telehealth's just the, the mechanism or the channel to get to the patient. But if you look at it more broadly, you could be setting up systems where remote monitoring occurs through every single day, through a single platform. You could be doing check-ins with people through some of these technological pieces that we've got to then go, okay, there's something not quite right here. Let's jump on telehealth call and do the video conference with the GP. But at the end of the day, you just need to have clinician oversight over half of these innovations and these technologies to make it worth your while. But we're still stuck, particularly in Australia, into a bricks and mortar model. 
And I think that's going to be to our detriment at times. I think if you look at them more broadly, the benefit outlay reduction you can get by complementary technology all sitting side by side in a virtual world, so it's not a bricks and mortar delivery model, is pretty powerful. And you will get vast improvements from a patient outcome perspective. There's some pretty big challenges for our health system overall, but there's a great opportunity if someone gets along right. So what advice do we give to healthcare payers wanting to enable more innovation in healthcare? Just be bold. I mean, it can start with a simple conversation. The power of your brand for a startup and the the power of that alignment of the two brands can be really beneficial to the market. Um, And it also just makes the, the changes, the conversation that's currently happening in the Australian landscape. I'm hoping that this session was a good one to basically cover where we're at right now. Not just when it comes to telehealth, but telehealth for rural and remote Australia. What's happened so far and what still needs to be done. For a bit more of a deep dive and for more episodes that cover topics like telehealth, virtual care, rural and remote, funding and other topics we covered in this podcast episode today, check out the Talking Health Tech website, go to our glossary, have a look at some of those popular terms and then you'll find some related podcast episodes linked to those terms. So it's a nice way to navigate around. If you've got any feedback or thoughts on this episode or anything else, make sure you follow us on social media, on LinkedIn in particular, and let's keep the conversation going. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.